Welcome to Medical Educator Talks. Welcome to our podcast, Medical Educator Talks, where members from the Developing Medical Educators team at the Academy of Medical Educators discuss topics of interest with experienced colleagues from their field. In today's episode, we're in conversation with Dr. Pete McAllister, talking about medical education and well-being. So, Pete, thank you for being with me today. Um, for those listeners who are unsure about you, as it were, Pete, could you tell me a little bit about who you are, really? Yeah. Hi, I'm Dr. Pete McAllister. By trade, I'm a psychiatrist. I work for a large mental health charity based in the Midlands called St Andrews. And part of my role is Associate Medical Director for Training and Education. So I oversee training and education for a range of undergraduate medical students, but also some higher trainees too. Okay. okay. And so today's topic, is, as I'm sure you know, is all about well-being and resilience. But for the first part of it, I thought we'd just talk about you because obviously you've had a really interesting journey. And I won't go into it because that's a spoiler and you can tell me all about it. <laughs> and then uh, the next part, we'll be talking all about you know, well-being, resilience, how it affects your field and how it can affect us as medical educators, really. So for that first part, you know, what was what was your journey really to get to where you are? Okay, so I was a medical student at King's in London. I didn't oh, choose... Home for me too. <laughs> I, didn't, I didn't choose to go to King's. You might have heard of a thing called the Brixton Riots, which mm. ever so slightly reduced applications to a Campbellwell-based medical school that year. <laughs> so I had an unsolicited invitation to go for an interview, um, successfully got the grades and did medicine at King's. And one of the th- joys of King's is it is next door to the Maudsley. So my psychiatry, as we used to call it then, well, the mental health, my psychiatry attachment was inside the Maudsley where you have the most fascinating patients and the most fascinating clinicians, which really inspired me um, to do mental health. Um, I had decided I wanted to be an army doctor at a fairly early stage. Mm. I had a belief that soldiers will make huge sacrifices and the least we can do is give them the best medical care. So at a fairly early stage, I knew I wanted to be an army doctor and then I was exposed to more and decided I wanted to be an army psychiatrist. So having finished medical school, I joined the army. I served for 25 years and have finally settled. I came out about seven years ago and settled working for a large mental health charity called St Andrews, which is based in the Midlands, um, which has a big focus on education, both internally, let's say we're also a teaching hospital for two different medical schools, so Cambridge Medical School and Buckingham Medical School. Um, I just love the engagement we have with medical students. I think as so, well, if we say students per se, so whatever your background is, when you're engaging with bright young people, it makes it puts you on your best game. It makes you really question what you do, um, why do you do the things that you do, the way that you do it, mm. because it's so new to them, they haven't got a clue. So it's it it really it makes everybody bring their best, I think, clinical practice if you're a teaching organisation. Sure, uh, I'm sure they always keep you on your toes, right? Uh, mm. Yeah, yeah. Okay. So I guess with that in mind, you know, where do you, I was going to say, first say, you know, where do you see the future of your current role evolving and probably also maybe your previous role in the army, but maybe that's just me in my best interest. So we'll just stick to your current role for now. <laughs> okay. So the, the current role, we are, the medical schools are expanding. Mm. We take it really seriously. You will remember um, in terms of medical school training, there's various blocks or segments that you go to. Mm. And when you've done that, you've done that. Hopefully it all goes well and you pass the exams and you progress forward. 
but I'm acutely aware that for the Buckingham students, we only have a seven week period when the only exposure they're gonna to get to mental health patients is with me. Mm. And that's a really important time. I think as a fairly specialist hospital, you have to remember that that's precisely what you are. And I remember my first ever medical, general medical firm as a medical student was at the King's Liver Unit. Mm. So in the first week when I was asked about common causes of jaundice, I said Bud Chiari syndrome, because I had three on the ward. You get a really <laughs> skewed view if you work <laughs> in a specialist service. You know, you don't see common things. Um, so we need to balance that. And also it's about remembering that lovely that it would be to inspire all medical students to come and study psychiatry. We know that they're going to engage in mental health with their patients irrespective of their speciality. Mm. But they end up as a, and even, even I say, the, the died-in-the-wall orthopaedic surgeons who want to do nothing but put Meccano on people, they still mm. need to talk to the patient. You know, mm. it's the reason they jumped off the multi-story car park and broke both our calcanium, which is why we teach them something about mental health. Um, it would be lovely to, sorry, we also have an opportunity to employ young doctors to continue their training with us. And it's, it's for a long time now, education has been a lifelong practice. Mm. It's not a case of you, you put your shingle outside the door and you say, this, I'm a doctor, you never learn anything again. Um, being involved in forging people's careers and helping them move forward, recognising that we have lots of different learning styles and, and accommodating that as much as we possibly can. It's really exciting job. Yeah, no, I'm sure, uh, absolutely. Like, I'm, and part of all the listeners here would, they all have an interest in education and probably echo everything that you've said. You know? Okay, so let's say, you know, uh, if you're starting your role now, what would what would you do differently with the benefit of hindsight and experience? Oh gosh, okay. Um, I would, if I was starting in now, I would still join the army. Mm. I, I still think military medicine is a fantastic. Um, sub-branch of medicine it has you forge fantastic relationships with colleagues you do some really difficult and challenging things in difficult and challenging places it offers huge opportunities and you can make huge differences to the patients that you care for i think i'd still even now i don't think i'd be i would struggle with all the running and the jumping up and down <laughs> um i think on the inside i'm still a very slim 25 year old captain but on the outside i'm one of the <laughs> retired full colonel um, yeah. But I, I, and I certainly would come into mental health. Now, mm. for those listening to the podcast who are educators and are in the surgical field, I take my hat off to you. How someone can do a list of gallbladders the same way they did gallbladders the week mm. before, the week before, the week before that. In mental health, even if people, even patients got the same diagnosis, they're all completely different. They all have a different story to tell. They have a different recovery pathway. So I'm currently the responsible clinician on a ward for women of working age who've got a diagnosis called EUPD, so Emotionally Unstable Personality Disorder, and everybody's an individual, everybody's different, everybody's in a different stage in their recovery, and I find that fascinating. The thought of doing something that's really quite samey, I think I'd struggle with, and I think that, although as a, as a degree topic, medicine is fantastic, it opens yeah. so many doors, there's so many things you can go and do with a medical degree. I think within mental health, it's also quite a broad church, and that's what I like. Yeah, no, no, thank you. Um, 
yeah i guess it's always interesting and it's always really reassuring when you when you see people such as yourself who would do the same things right that would do the same things that they did do um, i should probably also say to everybody listening this is not an army uh, advert for the army <laughs> even though you and i both have a hand in it but yes fine uh fine so you know i think yeah so the, the next question is so now we're addressing the mental health and well-being resilience and that kind of mark so obviously you treat that with the mental health with the patients you now and you certainly i would say the army has put a lot of agenda with mental health well-being resilience you know previously we had shell shock get ptsd and all that stuff so in your opinion how, how what would you define as resilience and the, the two other parts of this question i would say is can one measure measure resilience as a teacher as an educator in our students and how can we build resilience so i know i've kind of landed you with three bits there so i'll I can probably remind you if you forget. Okay, so, cool. so, what do you define as resilience? Yeah, so in terms of resilience, I see it as one's innate ability to bounce back from difficult things. Now, um, if we talk about traumas with a small t, so difficult things that happen that knock you off your stride, that will cause an emotional response. You'll be upset, you'll be cross, it could be a whole host of emotions, but you adapt and you overcome. Everybody has a different coping style and a different tolerance for how much they can put up with. I think we're currently thinking about healthcare. We're currently at the end of what is hopefully the end of a very difficult pandemic. Uh, as a psychiatrist, I'm sitting talking to you in scrubs. That's not the normal way of things. Okay, I'm a, I'm a sort of tweed jacket and colourful trousers, sort of doctor. I don't do the scrubs thing. I think it's been challenging for lots of us. But it's about how you deal with those challenges and then revert back to your normal normal function. Um, and what can affect that is a whole host of things. So it can be about character. It can be about previous experiences. It can be about what's going on in your life at the minute. We are all much more than just our jobs. And in terms of thinking about resilience for students, the, the better you know your students, the better relationship you have, the more understanding you have of the other things that's going on in their life, um, it's much easier to understand how they're coping with their difficulties and whether they may, may need a bit more support. The assumption that everybody's going to be fine, I don't think is right. I think most people will be fine and most people get on. That's what the, the, the sort of epidemiology following traumatic incidents is. Most people are fine. Most people get better. But some don't. They may need additional support. And it's about having a relationship where people can be open and honest about the challenges or difficulties so they can get the appropriate support the real irony is when there's so much support out there but people either don't know about it or they're being not being signposted to it or they're effectively suffering in silence because i think as a society we are changing hugely we generally i think we generally accept it's okay not to be okay there's people out there who put yeah. their hand up and say i've really struggled um and being able to tell positive stories about people's recovery i think encourages people to come forward there's always going to, sorry, there continues to be, let's hope there's not always going to be, but there mm. continues to be a lot of stigma around mental health conditions. Mm. That is much, much better than it was 20 years ago, but it's still got some way to go. Um, even if there are celebrity campaigns and people being very open about their mental health, the stigma associated with mental health can still stop an awful lot of people coming forward. So if we learn to be kind to one another, to have a better understanding of what people are going through together with an expectation that most people will get through this i mm. think it's going to be the most helpful thing in terms of people's resilience yeah no, no, absolutely and I, I guess um yeah you, you pretty much answered one of my follow-up questions is going to be you know there's a lot more focus especially now when i when i imagine i was going through dental school to where i am now a lot more people talk about mental health and yeah. the pandemic i think played a role in it but i think it was there before 
and you know it's just in, encouraging in a way um but so you know speaking of me and you know I, let's say i have a new batch of students is there ways that we can measure resilience in our students you know yes you can get to know people but how can i look at a room of people is it you know some people will say there are metrics that you can do to measure resilience or actually they don't work what do you what do you think about that argument I think there's no, like any kind of screening tool, there's nothing that's going to be specific and, and, and sorry, specific and sensitive enough to do it justice. Okay. So whatever tool you're using, you'll miss some people that you should have put in the group and you'll discount some of the people who's not studying where they probably are. Um, I think it's about setting a culture where it's okay for people to come forward and if they've got difficulties and what, whatever that is. So whether early on in terms of, clinical education. I think medical schools are much better now at making reasonable adaptations. I think most of the application forms talk about are there any additional support that you may need. Um, but in terms of how one as an educator sitting in the front of a group of students, I think it's about how you interact with them, how approachable you appear, try and flatten that hierarchy. Again, on the inside, I think of myself as a 25 year old captain and on the outside, I'm a grey haired old bloke. <laughs> I, I look a bit venerable, it's, it's yeah. a problem. Um, but once you kind of got over that, once you begin to know your students, once you demonstrate that you are there for them and their learning is the most important bit for you, hopefully, the, the, and, and those of us have had it that there are times when people ask to speak to you after a session or they catch you in the corridor or they say or oh, could we meet later and talk about something um, and I don't think that's just about being a mental health professional I think all of us get an opportunity for students to offload anything they're worried about and we can offer them advice and support about how to help mm. yeah. okay no, no, no. thank you um, so with that in mind then so let's say I have an idea of my students and things like that and is there ways that I, as a teacher, can help as well as making people, I guess, come forward when they're having a bad time? Is there other ways which I can just slowly in the background build that resilience? So, you know, I've got exams coming up in a few months time and I know my students going to be a lot of stress. Other things that I can do as an educator to try and build that just gen, gen, general innate sense of yeah. I can handle this. I got that grit, you know? Yeah. So, I mean, I think all educators should teach our students about the UX Dodson curve. The fact that when the exams are so far away, your level of anxiety is going to be exceptionally low and your performance is going to be equally low. However, when they get a bit closer, your anxiety will go up and therefore your performance and how much effort you're putting will go up. Mm. But you need to be careful because that's a curve because if you become excessively anxious or you become exhausted by your revision, then your performance goes down the other side of the curve. Um, so it's about understanding some of the self-care things, genuinely what works to help people bolster their resilience. So that's about focusing on the relationships you have that are supportive, focusing on a bit of self-care, doing the things that you like doing. If you like giving yourself you know, half an hour to go and do a run when all you think about is you and your podcast, then that's what mm. you should be doing. It's about a balance because if we particularly, so I look after students and this week, we have our first batch of clinical placements. So we have some incredibly excited young people. This is the first time they've been out of a lecture theatre or a team screen because of um, COVID. And they're coming into a hospital to see live patients. Um, the students we bade farewell to a month or so ago were the same year of students, but at the very end. So they've had all the different placements that they were doing mental health at the very end. But for them, their final exam wasn't a year away. Their final exam is three weeks away. And you have mm. to deal with those students differently. You have to recognize that there is going to be 
he, despite being the opportunity to learn lots about mental health and seeing some really fascinating psychiatric cases, you know that in their heart of hearts, they want to open Kumar and Clark and read about the kidney. There's, there's, there's things outside <laughs> mental health that um, we need to, to appreciate. We can look, you've only got seven weeks. This is the only time you're going to see this stuff, but also be recognised that you are frantically worried about your exams. So mm. these are the things you need to do to ensure um, you're going to pass the exams. And again, the truth is most people do. That's the nice thing about education. Most people work hard and manage to pass the exams. But all of us have that little bit of anxiety about will I be faced with a question that is completely unfamiliar or what can I do to prepare myself most? And in truth, your chances of exam success, yes, it is about what you learn, but it's also about how you look after yourself. So if you go into an exam setting completely sleep-deprived, deprived, undernourished and over-caffeinated, you're not going to do as well as you might hope if you've been able to look after yourself that little bit better. Yeah, yeah okay. So I guess, you know, we're talking about, you know, helping out students and stuff. How do you find towing the line, as it were, so not being overbearing and trying to really save someone who's having a really bad time versus those students who may take advantage of a very, very passionate or empathetic teacher, if that makes sense. So kind of I, I want to answer, answer sensitively, but there are students who are opportunists and they may take the mickey slightly and there are those who genuinely need help. So how do you as an educator tow that, tow the balance? Yeah, so, so the good news is that on the whole we're educating adults and they'll live by the consequences of their actions. So <laughs> if they go around telling every, you know, it, I, I, I'm if they go around telling every block leave they've just lost a grandparent, so by the end of the year they've had 12 grandparents, <laughs> um, then yes, congratulations, you may have had a bit of sympathy, you may have had a bit of slack court, but in terms of your preparation, both for things like final exams, but actually a, a clinical career, mm. that's jolly hard work. And, and one of the ways of preparing for that is you train for those difficulties. And, mm. and we know that clinical courses, they're the hard courses. We've all been to university. We've looked enviously at our fellows in halls of residence who've had maybe one or two contact hours a week. And you're mm. knocking out you know, a nine to five job, whether you're a vet or a dentist or, or, or a doctor. We have different standards in terms of what's expected of you and the amount of work you need to put in. So it's a bit like a screening process anyway, because if you can get through, if you can't get through medical school, it's unlikely you're going to make a full career in medicine. Same deal for vets and dentists. But I think where we're better now is we're much more supportive to individuals. I mean, I'm old enough to remember that it was a, on call was a one in two day on, stay on. That's mm. not a good way to treat junior doctors. It really is. <laughs> yeah. That's not a caring, compassionate way. And, and, and those of us who are now quite senior in medicine, our responsibility is not to say that was okay in my day, it's to recognise that that wasn't okay in our day. That was dangerous and that was unkind and, and it wasn't the best way to, for people to learn. And actually the world's changed. So the current crop of junior dentists, doctors and vets have a different exposure at university and again have a different exposure to the training and that's a good thing not a bad thing mm, okay well i mean I, I guess it alluded to the last bit of you know the thing the things that we, I guess we can do differently and how people have different experiences as they're training so what more do you think could be done by individuals or teams or organizations you know so for example the the, the trust that you work in yeah. what can i do as an educator really so not even just my batch of cohort of students 
to address yeah, so it's about pushing that well-being message okay mm. it's that it's not just about not being poorly it's about living better it's about some of the some of the sensible recommendations you make in terms of people's diet, in terms of hobbies, in terms of alcohol, um, recognizing that there are things that we can do to increase our health and increase our resilience. And that looking after yourself is not a bad thing. One of the things that clinicians often do is they put their pets ahead of so pets, I was thinking about vets for the beginning. <laughs> their pets, their patients, their, their customers, their clients in front of their own needs. And I think as, as professionals, we need to educate the young trainees as they're getting ready for what is hopefully going to be a long and productive <laughs> clinical career, is that part of that has to be about looking after themselves to facilitate that longer term. Hmm. Okay, well, so again, I guess you talked about like re-educating almost. What do you think people currently get wrong or don't really hmm. understand very well about well-being and mental health? <laughs> Oh gosh, it's all felt a bit soft, a bit fluffy. Um, it, it can all be a bit macho. Um, it's seen as a bit of weakness. Um, and I say some of that can be cultural and that's fairly toxic. Some of that can be historical. So to say, it just because on the whole, in terms of clinical education, it is the older, more experienced teaching the younger, less experienced. That's mm. something we can't learn from our junior colleagues because of course we can and we should. Um, but that understanding that the world is a different place now, and just because it was difficult for you, doesn't mean you have to make it difficult for other people. Mm. Okay. Um, well, I guess now that we're, uh, I guess, coming to my latter bits now, because clearly you've you've lived a very colourful life with both the army and now what you're doing in Civvy Street. Do you? I would say that the army, it being the nature it is, it selects a very certain type of individuals, a certain breed, really. And in a way, you know, medics, vets, dentists, all healthcare educators, there are a certain breed of individuals within the wider landscape of delivering healthcare. So how do you think the differences are between those sets of people? Are we actually quite similar more than we think? Or actually the niches that we develop means we all have our own well-being and resistance monikers, really, Gosh. if that makes sense. Okay, so... Um, Kings did some research looking at how is it that some soldiers stay in quite a long time, do lots of operational things, and yet remain well. It's called the healthy warrior, warrior yeah. effect. So effectively, if this isn't for you, you stop doing it. So if you're brave enough, and let's be quite clear, these people are brave. Mm. If you're in your first year at university and go, this is not the course for me. Stepping away from that course is an incredibly brave thing to do. Mm. The amount of pressures, either from family, parents, schools, peers, oh no, you've been selected to do this course, this is what you're going to do. To be brave enough to say, I'm not sure this is me, mm. is an incredibly strong thing to do. So um, what we don't want to end up is people being forced into careers that don't work for them. Um, so I kind of lost my thread. You talk about resilience. Oh, so, yeah, so, so in terms of the, yeah. the, the Venn diagram of what's, what are military people like, who, who does the military like to be military people, so their selection procedure, I think there is, it's like all culture, isn't it? It's about groups and group identity. And everybody likes to belong to part of a group, how you define yourself. But then also part of being in a group, there need to be some people that aren't. Mm. So... Being the armed forces versus being a civvy, 
for example, or being a surgeon as opposed to not being a surgeon. Or there's there's lots of different groups we put and how you tend to identify you yourself personally. So I think there's you bring something of yourself to see, will I fit in with this group? And then I think the longer that you're part of that either profession or core or regiment, then your history shapes yourself so that you become more. It, you know, classically speaking, young army dentists, doctors, vets are tall, slim, relatively fit, you know, can hold a conversation, have a degree of confidence they can walk into a room of complete strangers, shake someone by the hand, look them in the eye and have a chat. Now, some of that's got to be pre-selection, who's the raw material, but some of it's training and expectation. But when you've done some challenging things, and whether that's sort of, you know, you've run half a marathon, or you've run an entire marathon, or you've done an Ironman, whatever it is you think is challenging, the fact that you've been able to go through that means that for the rest of your days, you have lived experience of being able to cope with something that was very, very difficult. And that's the sort of thing that builds your resilience. Okay, well, yeah, again, going on the theme of like selecting your niche, so the army does theirs, uh, medicine, all dental schools, medical schools, mm. what have you, they do theirs. So from a recruitment issue, do you think there is some way to recruit students who have an innate element of resilience and well-being, or is it an impossible ask? Oh, gosh. Okay. So, yeah, so this would go back to there's no great screening tool. So if there was a test, and you said, as long as you can get over this bar, we think your resilience is such, you're gonna be a fantastic clinician. Um, but by dint of the test, you'll be weeding out people that could have been absolutely fantastic. So there's a big study done, again, at King's where they've done lots of military research. And the Americans have tried to do this um, in the Second World War, trying to screen people for vulnerability. So if you're going to send people to war, you don't want anyone to get damaged. So let's just send the most robust and everyone else will be fine. The evidence was just the test didn't work. You ended up screening out some people for whom would have had, it's a strange phrase, but a glorious war. They'd have done exceptionally well. And you put some people in the group who had an awful time. So I think there's something about self-selecting bias. As I said before, I think it's incredible. I genuinely think it's incredibly brave. So if you started either on a, on a career or on a training course, to be able to say, this isn't for me, it is a much harder thing to pull yourself out than to keep going. Mm. Um, the, but there's also something cultural. I, I, was a, I trained in London. I was at a university hall of residence. Mm. And even in the first couple of terms, really easy to spot. Who were the Mary's medics? Who were the Royal Free medics? Sorry, who were the Queen's like, medics? Who oh, were the sorry, okay. There's something <laughs> about that sort of subgroup culture. But we see that in the army too. You know, you have yeah. a guards regiment against a non guards regiment. Or even within the guards, you have A company, B company, C squadron. There's, it's automatically set up that you have pride in your immediate group and you can coalesce to be a bigger force. And that's really helpful. So when we've looked about, no matter how isolated people have been clinicians during the pandemic, when the NHS was being praised for all its hard work, that had a trickle-down effect on everybody. Everyone who could see that was the phrase key worker was a really empowering praise for some people who think what they do is just pretty much normal. Um, okay, yeah, so I guess going back on that bit, we know key workers and everyone uniting under the banner of fighting against COVID. Now, if you look all across the healthcare space, workforce is a big issue. And there are a lot of people who say, you know, mental health, well-being, I, I just can't hack this anymore and stuff. So there is this huge, I guess, gap, as it were. We certainly see it in the dental world. 
um, and I'm across, I'm sure across all the sectors. So in terms of addressing their well-being resilience agenda, how do you think me as a large organization or a future clinician can try and make my posting seem more attractive? Okay, so one is about being honest. So talk about the mm. good bits and the less less good bits of the role. So people understand what they're letting themselves in for. I think also setting up a culture where we give people time to focus on their self-care, that recognizing that there is more to you than just the job. Yeah. Mm. Recognize that there needs to be time for you to spend time with your families or your immediate partner or your dog or your cat or whatever that is. I think is vitally important and not just focusing on what you're doing in the nine to five or much more often seven to six that you're in the clinical workplace. Yeah, that's an interesting comment as well because I think there's a lot of people or trust who might do the hearts and mind stuff. And I remember one of the places I used to work well, for, they were doing ice cream day for everybody, but they didn't address, you know, the, the parking on site or place to put your bike sheds in. Um, so for the very last thing, um, to tie all of this up into a nice little hopeful bow, how do you think we as medical educators can promote that positive culture of well-being, mental health yeah. agenda for our students, fellow colleagues? Yeah, anyone, think, really? so it's about demonstrating that we believe it and we do it. So in terms of Maslow's hierarchy, think of the needs. You were saying before that you know, it's great that they want to have an ice cream Thursday, but actually if you can't park or you can't get clean scrubs or the contractor that cleans your instruments means there's never enough stuff, that's a stressor that people don't need. So getting the basics right, doing the basics brilliantly is the most important thing. And then allowing people to, work and exist within a culture that says if you're struggling there is help it's okay not to be okay we you know we have chosen you from a cast of thousands you haven't just turned up in this organization you haven't mm. turned up in this trust you haven't just turned up in this role the whole host of selection has gone in you're a really valuable asset and we are here to support you develop you and help you move forward yeah, that's oh, well, well, it's a really nice sentiment. I think uh, imposter syndrome is, is a, a thing that a lot of us junior clinicians, myself included, feel quite a lot. And uh, it's nice, to, I guess, to know that we work for a place that would support us, really. But anyway, thank you very much for your time, Pete. It's been uh, a really encouraging conversation. And, um, so my absolute pleasure. <laughs> no worries. You still look like a 25-year-old captain going around <laughs> doing, doing the time. Oh, I wish. So, yeah. <laughs> right. All right. You take care. Love to see you, sir. Yeah, okay. No worries, Pete. Have a lovely day. So that's it for today's episode of Medical Educate Talks. We hope you've enjoyed it. And if you have, please give us a follow so you can find out when the next episode is released. If you'd like to find out more information about the Developing Medical Educators group, visit medicaleducators.org and we'll see you in the next episode.